0: We are digging into Romans 9 again this week, and uh, this has surfaced some deep memories for me of when I first read Romans 9, back when I was a teenager, back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, you know. I think I was a senior in high school in Southern California, and I had begun, uh, it was a season I'd begun to pursue God more seriously, and I'd started reading through the New Testament every three months. I'd been encouraged, challenged to do. And by the way, that's not nearly as challenging as you might think. It's only about three chapters a day. And I I read and I soon arrived at Romans 9. And I was as shocked as some of you were the first time you read Romans 9. I I thought, this cannot mean what it sounds like it means. I, I thought, I hope that I can find someone to explain this to me, which being interpretive meant to explain it to me in a way that agreed with what I already thought. And what I already thought was that my will was free to make whatever choices I wanted, that I was the ultimate decision maker in my life. And I looked around and it's like, well, I make decisions every day. I mean, I chose to follow Jesus, I choose to pray. I assumed that my free will was the ultimate decisive factor in my relationship with Jesus. And this was not something that I had learned from the Bible. I would absorbed it from the self-sufficient, self-exalting, self-referential, autonomous air that we all live in, that we all breathe in every day in our cultural context. I just assumed it. Now, if you'd asked me, I would have told you that I believed in the sovereignty of God, that I believed that God was in control. But what I really meant by God's sovereignty was that God was free to do whatever he wanted to do in my life as long as he had my permission. And then I was confronted with Romans 9 and the realities of unconditional election and irresistible grace. I I read verses like 11 and 12, where it says, though Jacob and Esau were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And I thought, what? That's not fair. And then I realized Paul was way ahead of me because in verse 14, he asks, is there injustice on God's part? And I thought, exactly, Paul, that's, that's what this is. This is unjust. And then in verse 15, Paul quotes God saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And I thought, wait, if God is sovereign like that, that how can I be held accountable for my actions, for for the decisions I make? And, And I found that again, Paul was ready for me. In verse 19, he asked, well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And I thought, exactly, that's a great question, Paul. But then Paul answers that question in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel, vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. And, and I, I thought, that, that this cannot be. This would mean that God is absolutely sovereign over everything, even human decisions. And it would also mean that God is far, far bigger than I thought. And I am far, far smaller than I ever thought. For me in my life, coming to grips with God's sovereignty took several years. And during that time, I think I read through the New Testament a dozen or so times, and the process was not comfortable. It wasn't easy. I read a number of books. I had a lot of discussions with college roommates. I had many arguments against what I was reading, both in my mind and with other people around me. But throughout the process, Romans 9 stood unmovable and unchanging and solid. And I've been a pastor now for over 35 years. And I have actually seen this time and time again, how emotional it can be when someone watches their human-centered worldview crumbling around them. For me, in my life, at some point, I realized that I would either have to come into alignment with what I believe Scripture taught, or I would have to start redefining and even downplaying, minimizing what I believe God's word clearly was saying. And it was a sobering thing to realize that even unintentionally, yet I was still minimizing God's sovereignty in an attempt to preserve some of my own. Well, my story is that eventually by God's mercy, I submitted to The scriptures, I fell out of love with human autonomy. My my worldview, I I discovered, could not stand against the word of God, especially Romans 9. And my so-called self-determination came crashing down all around me. And for decades now, I have been falling more and more in love with the supremacy of God's sovereignty in all things, wondering many times why I had not seen it before. And what I have come to see over many years, what I hope you will come to see, if you have not already, is that God's wise sovereignty is deeply satisfying. It is awe-inspiring. I have come to see that God's sovereignty isn't merely about raw power. God's not like some divine bully. I've come to see that God's sovereignty doesn't mean that I am not responsible for my actions, but instead that human responsibility is real and authentic, that this Responsibility that is real, is contained in and interwoven with and subsumed under the sovereignty of our almighty God. I have learned that God's sovereignty is not mainly something to be debated about, but to be treasured and to be adored. And this will surprise some of you, I think, that God's sovereignty actually means liberation and freedom. Freedom for undeserving, human-centered, self-preferring people like me and like you. God's sovereignty when it is understood properly, biblically means the humbling of human pride. It means the intensification of worship. It means the magnification of our joy in affliction. It means hope and assurance and confidence when life is dark because we know that God's unstoppable purposes will prevail. Most of all, and we will be talking about this today and next week, uh, I think that coming to grips with God's sovereignty in our life, it just leads to greater awe and adoration and praise and worship. And if you are finding yourself right now not quite seeing how, then my prayer is that you will see how someday very soon. I also want to be clear as we are working our way through Romans 9 that If you disagree with me about this, I still love you. I still see you as a brother and sister in Christ. You are still welcome here at this church. Um, I am willing to discuss and even debate if need be, but I don't really want to fight about this with anyone. Um, I'm a student of church history. If you've been around here very long, you probably know that. And one of the things that I've learned in that is that this is an issue that Christ followers have been arguing about, sometimes fighting about, Uh, for most of 2,000 years, and we still don't all agree. But all I can do as your pastor is tell you what I believe the Bible teaches. And so that's what I'm gonna do. If you were here last week, uh, you may remember that we did a kind of overview of Romans 9. We were looking at some questions that people often ask uh, about election and predestination. And I told you last week that we would come back And we start at the beginning of Romans 9 and we work our way through. And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, We are in verses 1 through 13, if you haven't gotten there already. We're going to be looking at what I'm going to call the mystery of election. The mystery of election. And one of the realities that I hope you will see as we study Romans 9 and also Romans 10 and 11 is that God's sovereignty and election is ultimately a mystery. And by that, what I mean is it's something beyond our human understanding Now, some people hear that and think, oh, well, I have to think about that. No, that's not what we should do. We should do all we can to understand it. But in the end, there will be mystery, which should not surprise us because our God is an infinite God. Amen? And we are not. He is God, and I am not, and you are not. And so we should not be surprised when we encounter things about him and about his ways and about his purposes that we cannot fully understand. So we're going to talk, I think, about uh, two aspects of that mystery this morning. But before we do, I I want to kind of make sure we have our bearings uh, in Paul's flow of thought through Romans. And this is so essential uh, to understand what Paul is doing in Romans 9 through 11, this section that we're embarking on now. These Three chapters to some people can at first feel like a bit of a detour from what paul 's been arguing, but but they 're really not in fact, some commentators see them as the, the climax of of paul 's argument in romans so here 's a brief overview of Romans one through eight as a reminder. You may remember last year uh, toward the beginning of two thousand and twenty three we studied how in, in chapter one, verse eighteen through chapter three, verse twenty, that Paul is arguing that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin, that all are liable to God's just judgment. In other words, all people everywhere are sinners. Amen? Everybody. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of Romans 5, Paul demonstrates that God's righteousness is now available for all those sinners. (laughs) For all people. Jews and Gentiles by faith in Jesus. And he tells us in these chapters that by faith in Christ, we can be justified, declared righteous, not with our righteousness, but with Jesus' perfect righteousness that is credited to us because we are now in Christ. Paul even says that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, he was counted righteous by faith which opened the doors for Gentiles to be saved. And and then in Romans 6 through 8, those marvelous chapters, Paul shows how that righteousness changes our lives, how we become more like Jesus Christ. It's called sanctification. And it's really about, when you study the whole Bible, how the blessings of God that he promised to Israel in the Old Testament are now described as blessings that belong to Jesus' church. That's us. Blessings like the gift of the Holy Spirit, which God promised in the Old Testament. Blessings like adoption as God's children or the future resurrection and and glory with God or the promise that one day that we will never ever be separated from God's love and on and on and on. These promises were all originally given to Israel in the Old Testament. And that reality, here's the point, would have raised all kinds of questions In the minds of the Jewish listeners, particularly in the church in Rome, that first received this letter. They would have thought, wait, what about all the promises God made to Israel? Are you you saying, Paul, that they've just been transferred to the church? And, And if they are, does that mean that Israel is now left outside of God's promises? Does that mean that God has abandoned his original people? And Paul, if God hasn't fulfilled the promises he made to Israel. How can we trust any of his promises to us? See, the fundamental issue in Romans 9 through 11 relates to the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. Does God keep his word? Is he faithful to his promises? Can we trust him? Can we be sure that he will fulfill his promises to us today? is relevant for your lives right now, today. And as I, I told you last week, I'm going to keep reminding you, it's so important you get this. Paul defends God's faithfulness by appealing to God's sovereignty. So with all that in mind, let's look at the first aspect of the mystery of election. And here's how I want to phrase it. Very relevant issue. God's sovereign election does not negate our obligation to share Christ, to do evangelism, to do missions, to share the gospel. You see, one of the most common objections to the doctrine of election is that, well, it just ends the need for evangelism and missions. I mean, why would you bother to share your faith if God's already determined who's going to be saved and who's not? Maybe you thought that. What I want you to see here is that Paul would disagree. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says... I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. See, Paul is probably in this moment responding to people who think he's abandoned his his Jewish kinsmen. But Paul emphatically says he hasn't. In fact, his heart is broken for his people, ethnic Israel, that they're not saved. Now, of course, the Jewish people then wouldn't have seen it like this. They would say, what do you mean? We are God's people. But Paul says, no, outside of Christ, you are not. Paul says everyone outside of Christ is under God's judgment for their sin, In other words, their ethnicity does not save them. And and why are they cut off? Well, Paul would say because they refuse to embrace Jesus by faith, first of all. But there's another issue, a deeper issue that Paul explains throughout the chapter, Romans 9. He he says it's because God has not chosen all of ethnic Israel to be saved. Now, as we saw last week, Romans 9 is deep waters. This is going to take some real wrestling uh, on our part. But, but right now, what I really want you to zero in on is the anguish and sorrow that is on Paul's heart, that Paul deeply loves his people. He loves them so much that he wishes for something that he knows is impossible. He wishes that he could be a curse and cut off so that they could be saved. So here's the point I want you to see today. Many people who say that, that if you believe in God's sovereign election, then that means you cannot truly be concerned for those apart from Christ. The people who believe that, well, Paul would say, no, you're wrong. My heart breaks for my people. You know, I've prayed this week that Southwinds would be a church, would be a people whose hearts break, who have sorrow and anguish, who experience a burden for the people around them, around us who don't know Jesus. And I just wanted you to ask this question to yourself. Do you have sorrow and anguish for the people in your life who don't know Jesus? Do you experience a a burden for them? See, if you do... You, you should thank God for it because that is supernatural and you should continue to lean into that and you should be praying and asking God to soften the hearts and open the eyes of those people he's placed around you that are, are still lost. Ask him to open doors and give you opportunities to share Jesus with him. But some of you don't have that burden. You don't experience that. If you do, you should ask God to give you this. If you do find yourself in this place without the burden, you should ask God why your heart is like that. You should ask God to make you more like Paul. And I, I want to get real practical about this. We're going to, uh, between now and Easter, do something as a church family that we've done a couple times in the past over the last several years. We're going to have an, an emphasis we, we call Who's Your One. And maybe you've already noticed this out in the lobby. Maybe you remember from when we've done it before. But out in the lobby, you can pick these up uh, after the service. We have a number of tools. This is the, the primary one. It's a bookmark. Uh, on this lower part of the bookmark, it's something you keep with you. Up here is a tear-off card where you can write down the first name of your one, the person God has laid on your heart. And, and by the way, you can have more than one one, all right? If you have a two or a three or something like that, you, that, that doesn't break any rules, okay, in case you were wondering. Um, but what we'd like to see each of us do between now and Easter is just commit to pray for these people in our lives, to pray every day. Uh, this part of the card has 30 days, a first month of readings that you can uh, read as part of your time with God um, we, we just want to encourage everyone to enter into this and to take opportunities to look for times that you can share your faith with that person where you can show them hospitality. You, you can ask them, maybe sometimes it would be appropriate to ask them to come to church and be with you if, if that's where you are in the relationship. And what we want you to do at the top of this tear-off is to just write that first name down and then put it up on the board that is in there so that we can all see those names together and be reminded every Sunday as we come that we as a church family are praying for people who don't know Jesus Christ. You see, believing in God's unconditional election doesn't mean that we don't share Christ. In fact, it should give us increased confidence to do that because we know that God is bringing salvation to people around us. And I just want to say to you if If you have a burden for someone, I think that's a pretty good sign that God is going to bring them to salvation. And so you should pray and you should share and you should witness and you should serve them with confidence because our sovereign God, he is working in their lives. That's not, however, the only reason that Paul is grieving here. If we look at verses four and five, he he says that is also because ethnic Israel was so close to the truth because of their spiritual privilege. He, he lays out nine privileges they have in verses 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God, overall, blessed forever. Amen and part of Paul's anguish for his people is that they of all people should have recognized and believed in Jesus the Messiah Jesus the Christ they they were God's own people they had God's own word God had set his everlasting love on them and adopted them into his family so much more Jesus the Messiah the Christ came from them he was part of their ethnic family and all of this made it an incredible tragedy that these people, Paul's people, were cut off from Christ because of their belief. But again, it raises also this question of the promises that God had made to ethnic Israel. If they are not saved, does this mean God's word has failed? Does that mean God's defaulting on his promises? Does that mean we can trust him today? And and again, I want you to see this question is relevant for us today, because if God did not keep just one of his promises to Israel, we lose our assurance that he'll keep all of his promises to us. The second aspect of this mystery of election is that God's sovereign election does not nullify human responsibility. This is a big issue, and maybe many of you are contemplating it right now. And what I want to do is is trace Paul's logic here and then, then make some connections for you The question, of course, is has God's word failed? And Paul answers emphatically no in verse 6. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And again, I remind you as you keep reading through Romans 9 through 11, that's the point Paul is making all through three chapters. The word of God has not failed. God failed is faithful to his promises. God is not like talking out of both sides of his mouth saying that, yes, God chose Israel, but now they're, they're, they're not part of my family anymore. And Paul's gonna explain why. But again, I want you to see that Paul defends God's faithfulness by appealing to God's sovereignty. So how does Paul square this dilemma? Second half of verse six says, for or because... Not all who are descended from Israel, and that is physically, belong to Israel. Paul's point is that God never intended or never promised eternal life uh, to every individual, physical descendant of Abraham. And that just means his word is therefore not on the line here. Paul is saying that within ethnic Israel, the larger group, there is a smaller group that is true spiritual Israel. That's why he says in verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So track with Paul's logic. He is saying that the creation of God's people is not automatic. It is not mechanical. It is not natural. It is not by physical birth. Instead, he is showing us that God's people have always been created through God's sovereign, unconditional choice. And Paul says that means that God's word has not failed because not God never promised that all of ethnic Israel would be saved, only true Israel. And to prove this, he, he brings up two case studies that they would have all been familiar with. Many of you are as well. We talked about them briefly last week. The first involves how God chose Isaac, but not Ishmael. Second half of verse seven, he says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So this is the origin story of God's people Israel is how God created his people and Paul says God didn't do it through human effort God didn't do it through human merit God didn't do it through human works he did it through his choice he chose Isaac the child of promise who was born miraculously to Abraham and Sarah when they were 190 years old and that makes me tired every time I say it God didn't choose Ishmael, even though he was Abraham's child. But Ishmael, you see, he'd been conceived through human effort, human timing, by human decision. And and Paul is just highlighting here that this is setting the pattern for how God has always created his people. So he says again in verse 7, not all are children of Abraham. And he means here, not all are saved or made right with God just because they are his natural offspring. He's he's reminding us that though Abraham was the father of Ishmael, it did not mean that, uh, that Ishmael was right with God. Now, I want you to be real clear on this. Do not miss that Isaac, in this picture, case study, did not choose to be born as a child of God's promise. I want to stop for a moment. Just check, make sure we're clear on this. Quick question for everybody here. Uh, Is there anyone in this room that chose to be born? Would you you raise your hand if, if you chose to be born? I'm glad to see we're all clear on the concept here. And that's exactly the point that Paul's making. Isaac didn't make a choice here. Isaac did nothing here to merit God's choice of him God chose Isaac as a child of the promise. And again, Paul is saying this is how God always chooses his people. Not naturally like Ishmael, but supernaturally like Isaac. Not through man's decision and and willpower and ability like Ishmael, but through God's sovereign, unconditional election like Isaac. And then verse 8 says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse nine says, for this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And the key difference here is God's direct supernatural involvement in Isaac's birth. And it's all God's doing from beginning to end. And this is the way God always does it. Then Paul moves to case study number two. And what he's doing here is known as closing a loophole, okay? Because there would have been some people who have said, yeah, but it's kind of obvious why Isaac was chosen. Ishmael's mother, Hagar, she was a Gentile. You haven't proved anything, Paul. You, You say, what's the deal with being a Gentile? Well, back then being a Gentile was sort of like being a Raiders fan, something like that. They weren't God's people. And so somebody, somebody there was saying, they were saying, that's why he made that choice. And Paul says, no, and let me prove it. He says, look at the two sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. They were twins, right? They were born to the same mom and the same dad. They were born the same day. They were, it's the same. And yet, God chose one and not the other. God chose to include one in his promise and not the other. Why? Paul says it's only because of God's sovereign, unconditional election. Look at verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man and our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Now skip to verse 12. She was told, he's quoting Genesis twenty-five twenty-three: the older will serve the younger. As it is written, and now he's going to quote Malachi 1 verses 2 and 3. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now Paul is is just making so clear here that God decided the destiny of these two sons and also by extension the nations that they represented before they were born. That means that it was nothing decided by them, nothing in Jacob or Esau. It was all about God's sovereign choice. And he underlines that with that phrase, and had done nothing either good or bad. Why would he say that? Except to show this was not about their choices. It was about God's choice. This was not based on anything they did, it was not based on any condition that would cause God's choice. And that's why theologians call this. Biblical truth, unconditional election. There are no conditions in us that causes God to make his choice. It's all about his decision. In in this situation, God chose to love Jacob over Esau before they were born, before they'd done anything either good or bad, not because of their goodness or their moral achievements or their faith. God's choice was unconditional. God's choice was rooted in God and in God's will alone, not in the will of a person. And and again, Paul is highlighting this to show how we can know that God's word has not failed, that his promises are for the children of promise, the true children of God. And God fulfills all those promises for his children. Some of you may be troubled by that phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, quoted from Malachi 1. If that Troubles you remember that God never hates like humans hate. Remember that God is always good and always just, He never does anything wrong. You should know this is not about an emotion it 's most likely most scholars say an ancient idiom, an ancient expression, a way they would they would express things and it 's just telling us that God chose Jacob, but he didn 't choose Esau. One translation actually renders this Jacob I chose but Esau I rejected and God is basically saying here because again God is speaking I I have chosen to love Jacob but not Esau and again this is not about who these two people were if you go back to Genesis and you read the story of Jacob it's really clear Jacob is not a good guy right he's not like a moral example that you want to tell your kids be like Jacob Esau, of course, isn't either. But God didn't choose Jacob because he was better than Esau. This is all about God's choice, the reasons that God has. And again, this is the way God has always worked. And You can survey the Bible. And as you do, you will find time and time again, it is always God choosing and always people responding. It's never the other way around. See, one of the things that Paul is Alluding to here, and we're going to keep unpacking this through Romans 9, is that God is just in not choosing everyone. Some of you should write that down because you need to think about it, you need to ponder it, and, and, and wonder about it. God is just in not choosing everyone. Salvation comes only by God's mercy to whom he wills. And as we talked about last week, mercy by definition excludes obligation. In other words, God did not deny Esau something that he deserved, right? We we know we don't deserve our salvation. So why do we have it? Well, it is out of the free gift and grace and mercy of God that he loves us in Jesus, right? Right? We, we, we saw that truth back in 2023, early in our study, when we were studying Romans 1 through 3. We're all sinners, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as a sinner, Esau did not deserve to be loved. He did not deserve God's mercy. No one deserves to be loved by, by nature. No one deserves God's mercy by nature. What we deserve by nature is justice and judgment and wrath from God for our wrongdoing and our wrong desiring and our wrong self-preserving. I notice nobody wants to say amen about that. (laughs) But we know it's true, don't we? So God passes over Esau. He withholds his electing love. He gives him up to his wickedness. We don't know why. God doesn't explain it to us. And by the way, God doesn't have to explain it to us, does he? Can you accept that God doesn't owe you an explanation? We we, we see this here. God is God and I am not. God is God and you are are not. And and it was just for God to do this. And and so when Esau in his life goes on to act in his wickedness and sin, he will be accountable for that wickedness and sin. He will deserve judgment for that wickedness and sin that he, he chose for himself. When we study the Bible carefully, one of the things we we, we can say is that there is a kind of passive and active side to God's holy hatred of sin. It's, it's passive, in this case that he, he withholds love from Esau, while he gives it to Jacob, it's active in that God expresses holy hatred toward Esau's wickedness and sin, which is what Malachi one is talking about, which Esau will be accountable for on the day of judgment. See, unless Esau at some point turned from his sin, he will be accountable for that sin. He will not be able to say on that day in the presence of God, I do not deserve this. And also on the other hand, Jacob on that day will not be able to say, I deserve this. Jacob on that day will tremble in awe and in wonder and in humility that he of all people was chosen unconditionally by God according to God's grace apart from anything that he ever did in his life. What mercy, what grace of God. And see again, Paul's point is that God always fulfills his promises because they are based on his electing purposes, which are guaranteed to come to pass. God's purposes are invincible. Now I know There are probably many questions out there. I would expect that to be the case, things you're wondering about in your mind, and I'm still not going to be able to answer all of them today, so you need to come back next week, okay? (laughs) We're going to keep talking about it. But right now, as we get ready to close, I want to take a few moments to issue a caution, a a caution against jumping to unbiblical uh, conclusions, a, a caution against imbibing unbiblical assumptions, is something we, we need to deal with all through Romans 9. And here's what I want to begin by saying. Unconditional election does not contradict the truth that we make genuine choices in life and are held responsible for those choices. The Bible does not teach a sort of fatalism, which says God's already decided everything. What will be, will be. Doesn't matter what we do, so don't worry about it. That's not what the Bible teaches. Here's what the Bible actually does teach. The Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign and that God has woven our human responsibility into his sovereignty in such a way that our thinking and our deciding and our acting are real and genuine and authentic while he continues to be absolutely sovereign. If you feel the smoke coming out of your ears right now, that's okay. You don't have to understand that. In fact, I don't think anyone can fully understand that. But it's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches both of those things. And and so that means in terms of our lives, if we will be saved, it will be by us exercising living trust in him. If we are judged... It will be because of our sin and our unbelief. Our choices really do matter underneath and within God's ultimate sovereign purposes. So whether or not we spend eternity in heaven or we face God's judgment in hell, those things result from our free, genuine choices. And that is part of why belief in the sovereign, unconditional election of God doesn't inhibit our evangelism in the least. We're still called to share our faith. And you say, where do you get that? Well, I get it from all over the Bible. But let's just start with the Apostle Paul. Let's just start right here in Romans. If you're to turn the page, maybe you don't even have to turn the page. But the next chapter, Romans 10, very familiar verse, Romans 10, 10. Paul says, for with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then in verse 13, just a couple verses later, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are real promises. And don't forget, they come right after Romans 9. So what are we to make of this? It's like Paul just kind of floundering around. Is Paul confused? You know, speaking out of both sides of his mouth like God is sovereign, but maybe he's not. No, that's not what he's saying. He is saying both that God is absolutely resp- uh, sovereign and that we are responsible, and that those two realities, they are not enemies. Now, many theologians across the history of the church, uh, probably most have held to a view of these things that is known as compatibilism. Uh, I'm sure many of you were discussing compatibilism at breakfast, right? Compatibilism is pretty much what it sounds like. It just means that God's sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility, that both these things can, can be true at the same time. You say, I don't see how. That's okay. God is bigger than you are and smarter than you are, wiser than you are. He's God and you're not. And so some of his ways will be above us, amen? amen. But they're both true. So you might be asking at this point, "Well, what role does unconditional election play in our faith? Like, you know, practically... Let me take a few minutes to just tell you a little bit about that. Here's the biggest thing of all. What it does is it removes every single ground or basis for human boasting. Any thought that we bring anything to the table in terms of our salvation, it's gone. Unconditional election shows us that. And then unconditional election replaces that boasting, that human doing, that, that self-referential striving that we do to please God that, that leads us sometimes to wondering where we are with God. By the way, if you really struggle with that, it's because you think it's kind of up to you, at least in some point in your life. That's why you struggle, wondering if God likes you today. This unconditional election, it just removes... From the table, all of that and replaces it all with astonishment and gratitude and joy and unshakable confidence that is not based on our fickle emotions, but it is based on God's sovereign choice. Our will to believe is in fact saving, our will not to believe is in fact damning. We are held responsible for both, but underneath both is a mighty bedrock of God's free and unconditional election of all who will be saved and who will not. The elect will believe, the not elect will not. We are not sovereign, we are not autonomous, we are not self-determining, only God is. He is God and we are not. So how God is able to weave together his sovereignty and our responsibility in such a way that we remain fully accountable and he remains fully in charge, it's a mystery. It's above us. It's beyond us. But the Bible clearly teaches both. God's divinely revealed word reveals to us that these two realities coexist. John Piper says it this way, if this stretches your mind to the breaking point, better your minds be broken than the scriptures be broken. And even better yet would be to let your mind and heart be enlarged rather than broken so they can contain all that the scriptures teach. See, we must, as Christ followers, allow God's word to create new categories of thinking rather than us try to constrain God's word into our narrow, human, finite modes of thinking I want to urge you as you work your way through Romans 9, and I hope you are taking time in between Sundays to read the the passages that we're studying. I want to urge you to be so very careful not to try to tell God how he should run the universe. Can we agree on that? Do not try to tell God how he should save people how he should exercise his saving purposes. Be careful that you do not unconsciously maybe put yourself above the scriptures and demand that the scriptures be one way and not the other, and then end up diminishing or even denying parts of God's inspired word that are clearly taught. Be careful that you don't do that just because they do not fit into your pre-established framework of thinking Be careful that you do not assume that you are wiser than God or more just than God or more loving than God or filled with more goodness than God is, who is the source of all those things. Can can you accept that our infinite God at any moment of our lives has 10,000 reasons for why he's doing the things that he does? 10,000 reasons that we do not Even comprehend. See, as you allow this mindset to frame the way you think and see yourself, you know what happens? God gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more glorious than he ever was before, and we get smaller and smaller, and you know what else? We get greater joy. Why does God do it this way? Paul answers that question in 9 11. That, that part of the verse that I left out, here's what he, he says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. I mean, feel the weight of that sentence. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And see, when God reveals a reason he does something, it's so important that we listen because he's giving us just a little insight into ultimate reality. And that's what we have here. This is a massively important sentence. You could ask God, why do you do it this way? Why do you do this work of unconditional election? Why do you remove any conditions that human beings might bring to the table? And you know what God says? God says, so my purpose of election stands. Doesn't really explain why, huh? He just asserts his sovereignty He asserts his godness. He reminds us who he is and by extension who we are. He says, and it's not because of your works. It's all because of me, the one who calls. We should tremble before that declaration. So God's purposes would prevail by his own gracious sovereign will. It's not about our efforts, not about our works, our doing, our ideas, our willing. And so this means, this means that God is not bound by human self-determination. It means that God is not thwarted or ruined by human self-determination. It means that God does not share glory with self-determining humans. He doesn't. And that's why if you turn a couple pages to the end of chapter 11, the end of this whole section, why Paul in verse 36 of chapter 11 is going to say, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him, be glory forever. Amen. See, Paul is just beginning to unfold for us an argument that is so important for our lives. And and the argument is this, God's purposes and God's promises to us, they are invincible. They cannot be defeated. They will come to pass. And friends, if you don't see that yet, I hope you begin to see it now that changes everything in your life when that's true. See, when you begin to believe it, here's what it does. It it rewires the operating system of your heart in some completely unexpected ways. God's absolute sovereignty and unconditional election gives us absolute confidence in God's promises and all that he says. His purposes are invincible. His promises are reliable. He does not lie, and he has all the power to ensure that everything he promised will happen. God's sovereignty goes on to fuel profound assurance that we can know and know that we know that if we believe, we are chosen. And if we are chosen, we know we are completely loved, that God is 100% for us. And that means that we now can have a deep rest. In this God who is infinitely bigger than all of our problems combined. His sovereignty also infuses genuine meaning into our actions and decisions. All while, while we know that God is in complete control and that God can multiply what is good in us. And God can squash what is bad in us. And God can overrule what is foolish in us. And all of that means his sovereignty leads to heartfelt humility when we see that we bring nothing to the table, when we understand that even our response of faith is a gift, that it was God who opened our eyes. God opened our eyes. God opened our hearts to believe. And that leads to overwhelming gratitude, overflowing joy, because it just shows that we are now swept up into this story that is far larger than anything that we could have ever written or ever imagined for ourselves. And here's what I hope you will see alongside of that. When we minimize God's sovereignty, we lose all those things. They all become watered down. When we, even with the best intentions, begin to introduce anything that we might bring to the table. Now, if you're still wondering how this could be more practical, all I have to say is I don't know how you find anything much more practical than Romans 9. But let me take a run at it. Would you all agree with me as we begin 2024 that the world just generally sucks? (laughs) Right? It's a mess out there, isn't it? Well, God's sovereignty heightens our joy for facing life in a world like this one because it shows God is faithful to his promises. A bad economy cannot overcome God's promises. A bad economy cannot overcome our joy. Pundits and political parties and politicians and media outlets cannot overcome it. The election that's coming in November, and by the way, it's probably going to be either a dumpster fire or a train wreck. Your choice, right? That cannot overcome it. Closer to home, a failed marriage cannot overcome it. Cancer cannot overcome it. Death that was unexpected in your family of a loved one cannot overcome it. Unemployment cannot overcome it. Nothing can overcome God's purposes because God is sovereign over all. You see, in everything, this tells us that God is calling out and God is saving and God is purifying his people. And he is doing it by his sovereign power, which guarantees that it will happen come hell or high water or politics or pandemics or social turmoil. It will happen because God is sovereign over all. And we are, as his people, swept up into these purposes. And that infuses our actions and our words with tremendous import and meaning. And so we take the gospel with that confidence into our neighborhoods and into our places where we work and on into the nations. And we know that it is not all for naught because we know that God's worth us and he will fulfill his purposes in us and through us. He is sovereign. He is God. So if you are here today and maybe you're not a Christ follower yet, you're asking questions, you're checking this out, you're listening, you're thinking, then if you don't know Jesus yet, God's word says you are still under the guilt of your sin. You are today still cut off from Jesus. The word of God also says you don't have to stay there. And so I pray, I hope that you will let nothing you've heard today keep you from coming to him because Jesus loves you. Jesus came to this planet. He became a curse for us all on a tree. He lived a perfect life for us. He died a substitutionary death for our sins. He took the punishment penalty we deserve. And he did it all so that we could be set free and live. And he rose again on Easter Sunday to prove that everything he did was true, to display that all sin had been paid for. And when all sin is paid for, friends, the only thing left is life, eternal life. And so you can trust him today. Turn from your sins, turn to Jesus. You trust him, he will forgive you. You trust him, he will give you eternal life. You trust him, he will become your hope and he will become your joy. Turn and be saved all the ends of the earth salvation is found in jesus christ and no one else and he offers it to everyone today this is god's word for us today our sovereign god speaks his truth to us today amen Amen. would you bow your heads as we pray father god we we love you and we confess our, our need for you lord there are there are truths in your word like these that are so mind-boggling and, and yet at the same time so, Lord, profoundly comforting and, and thrilling and heart-melting. And God, it would be one thing if you were sovereign. It would be not another thing if we were responsible. But the beauty and the awe that you reveal to us in your word is that you are sovereign and we are responsible at the same time. And therefore, this means that our lives have meaning and purpose. We're, we live within your purposes, Lord, and we know that your purposes are invincible and indestructible because, God, you are sovereign. And so we just ask that you would help us in our human frailty to trust you afresh today. And we ask this in Jesus' beautiful and wonderful and powerful and good name, the name of Jesus by which we pray.